Welcome to Your Career Podcast, the podcast that helps to ensure your career success. To start getting on track with your career, download my free career goals calendar from thecareersacademy.online. My goals calendar includes a smart goals template and a weekly tasks sheet that will ensure step-by-step you get closer to reaching your career goals. So download my goals calendar today at thecareersacademy.online. Now on with the show. Welcome to episode 249 of Your Career Podcast. Lara Key's superpower is the power of connection. She connects with people very quickly and helps to connect them with whom they need to be connected. As head of business development for Asia Pacific for a barrister's chambers, 20 Essex in Singapore, Lara helps disputes lawyers find the very best barristers and arbitrators for their cases. She's also a business development consultant and executive coach for lawyers, leaders, and founders at Lara Q Associates, helping high performers achieve more success and greater happiness. She focuses on managing partners, in-house lawyers, and C-suite executives, and those not quite ready for retirement, lawyers who want to build their practice, and people who want to reinvent themselves. Podcasting is also her passion, and Lara hosts the Legal Genie podcast. In her spare time, she runs a unique handmade gifts and fabric company called Lara Q Designs and enjoys spending time with her three daughters, two Dachshunds, Black Rabbit, and long-suffering husband. Lara is Eurasian, Japanese, and British, and has lived in Hong Kong and Singapore and spent long periods of time in Spain, Germany, Belgium, and France. Now, with this varied background and multiple interests, I found that we have a lot in common. I'm Eurasian and I'm English Chinese and have also lived around the world. And so I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing Lara on your career podcast. And so let's hear her journey across the globe. And let's welcome Lara Quee to the show. Hello, Lara. Hello, Jane. It's great to be on your show. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm very excited because when we met during a webinar several weeks ago and um, and then we connected on LinkedIn, I realized we've actually got so much in common because we share a common cultural background as well as growing up a little bit like an expat kid as well. And um, you're now in Singapore, I'm in Sydney, and I spent 18 years in Singapore, which I love. So who better to get on the podcast than you? Because you've had some interesting career transitions you're a lawyer, you run your own business now as well, and you've got a side project that's really interesting and creative. So I'd love to hear all about it. But to kick us off, as I always do, tell me, Lara, what were your early aspirations for your career when you were a little girl? I think that when I was first aware of the fact that other people had careers, I was very interested in being a nurse. I thought that the caring profession was the way forward, looking after people. But then at the age of six, I became a teacher for the first time. The (laughs) headmaster's son was very 
very um, challenged with his reading and I suddenly snapped into reading and I thought it was very easy. So I would go over on play dates to his house and help him to read. Um, so yeah, I think my calling as a teacher came quite early. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the age of 14, um, I that was the moment that I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. So actually, um, I... I decided to be a lawyer quite early um, and I did uh, eventually (laughs) achieve that goal. Well, I'm very impressed that at the age of six, you already launched a career. (laughs) That's a first on your career podcast. (laughs) But obviously, you've got a talent for communication and educating and supporting people. So that that augurs very well for what you do now. So, So at the age of 14, what made you decide that you wanted to be a lawyer? So my mother was a an investment banker in the city of London and she did a lot of transactions that involved lawyers so she would tell me about them and she was using a firm called Linklaters and in those days which is very many years ago you were able to ask a favor of other people that you knew and she happened to say my daughter needs work experience Uh, any chance she could come and sit in your office for a couple of weeks. And very kindly, uh, this uh, very nice lawyer, Andrew Roberts, he said, of course, you know, Lara, you can come and sit with us for two weeks. And so I got my first um, uh, work experience uh, um, straight in at Linklater's Magic Circle. So that was the start and experiencing that, enjoying that very professional environment, lots of people beavering away, all of the sharp suits and power lunches. Uh, I thought this is the career for me. So that was the inspiration. <laughs> Ah, oh, the power lunches and the suits. My goodness, so that sucked you in, Laura, <laughs> Lara, didn't it? <laughs> how interesting. But it just goes to show how having work experience is so valuable because you could be in an environment that really inspires you or you could be in an environment that you think, okay, well, that was interesting, but it's not quite for me. But for you, knowing what it was like day to day and not only the job function, but also just the feel and the culture of a of a place, you realize this could be where you could fit, yes? So how, how did your career progress from there? Well, so I think that that really gave me a taste of things and I did um, other internships after that, all in solicitors' firms. I was quite set on it. Uh, I was told I was good at English and languages, so I knew that I was very arts-focused, that (laughs) science and um, numbers were not in my future. So that was very clear. Um, I think that in those days, it's still very traditional. Um, You know, I have a Japanese mother um, and so the tiger mum in her said well lawyer banker doctor um, and a doctor was <laughs> definitely not there as I said with my lack of science um, banker as well uh, so lawyer <laughs> was the only other one available in in that mindset I think and you know it's a prestigious high status profession it's something that people aspire to and because of that if you are academic and you happen to be able to achieve the the grades, um, you you do it. And I think, you know, I was just sort of carried along. Um, It didn't really occur to me that I could do anything else. And so I um, did languages at A-level 
And I knew at that stage already that doing languages would give me something to stand out from the crowd um, and that I would do languages at UT and then go to law school after that. So my path from the age of 16, pretty much from when I chose my A-levels, was totally planned and set. And I had already, and I don't really know how I had realized that this strategy, but I think it was more about the sign of the time. So in those days, it was all about the reunification of Germany, about um, Europe being a powerhouse. The UK was uh, in a very different time. We're speaking in post-Brexit times now, but certainly in the 1990s, it was all about um, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, all of those countries and how the UK could do business with them. So it made sense to me that uh, if I focused on French and German and linguistics at university, I could bring a lot of languages to the table. And that these international law firms had told me quite specifically, when it comes to lawyers, um, we're looking for people who bring something else. And so I thought, well, if I go and do law at university, I'm only bringing law. And actually, uh, you know, I'm quite academic, but I'm not outstanding. I don't think I would get a first in law, which would mean then no one, you know, no one would choose me unless I bring something. Hmm. But if I do a four-year degree, I would get one year abroad. And I, I really liked the idea of spending a year overseas and with other students and learning a language more in depth. And so um, when I had uh, my year abroad, that again gave me a more international perspective, a feeling of independence. Um, and I think that by the time um, the training contract application time came round, um, you know, I was in a position to say, well, I've lived abroad and I bring you these languages and, you know, I've done all of these training uh, experiences, you know, uh, work experience. I had such a brilliant CV compared to my peers because of the opportunities that I had been lucky to have. Um, and so I was very lucky to get a training contract with um uh, they're now called Dentons, but it was called Wild Sapped in those days. And it was a boutique um, finance and banking law firm because that was, you know, my mother was a banker. So I thought, oh, yes, banking and finance, that's the way forward. And in those days, they were very much the elite boutique for that. Um, they paid the highest rates um, when you went to law school and they sponsored me for my entire two years. And then I did my training contract, my two-year training contract with them after that. How interesting, because first of all, the parental influence as well, which has been really positive for your career. And, you know, have, having a tiger mom being being half Chinese myself, I understand that. But how good that, you know, you have parents who were really invested in your career and, and your future and success as well. But a very smart move to think you needed something unique and different from other highly qualified lawyers as well in order to really get your foot on the ladder and having the multiple languages it makes such a difference doesn't it and I think 
probably what must have really set you apart was was your your forward thinking and your attitude towards what else can I bring to the table? I need to really be able to sell without overtly selling, yes, which is the best thing when you're thinking about landing a, a new job or landing a different job as well. And so you moved into finance and banking. And then over time in your career, was there a specific aspect of law that you wanted to focus on more than another? Yes. So having got that training contract at a banking and finance um, firm, when I went to law school, I discovered international European law Mm. and because that was part of the curriculum. And that was the bit I I really enjoyed and excelled in. And a lot of that was around the mindset that European law is supreme. And of course, British people really couldn't accept that, as we've seen in Brexit. Mm. Um, and so, but I got that. I understood the different hierarchies of law and I was quite willing to accept that there could be, um, you know, an overarching supreme level of law that is sort of supranational. Um, and that, you know, understanding what regulations and directives and different things like uh, are like coming from the European Commission, etc. And so it really made a lot of sense to me. And then it tied in with my languages as well. So I thought, wow, European law, this is so interesting. And I got a real boost because dams and I got some sort of distinction in it, which meant that I I was invited to sort of an exclusive event with um, various rather uh, high profile individuals in in, uh, international law that were invited to the College of Law in Guildford. Um, And I thought, wow, you know, I seem to be quite good at this area. How interesting. And you, I think you're naturally drawn to things that you're good at. Um, And it made sense with my international connections and interests. Um, And so we haven't mentioned, but I actually actually grew up in Spain. Um, And so I've always been surrounded by uh, international people and I've always had an interest in languages um, and having had exposure to languages from a very young age, I think, you know, they come very easily to me. My ears are attuned to to listen out for um, different accents, to be interested in other languages, etc. So that whole European law thing really appealed. And so when I started my training contract at uh, at WildSapt, they didn't have a European competition law department at all. Uh, so I did seats in asset finance, in um, in general banking, um, in um, property law, and in reinsurance litigation. But when it came to qualifying, so after two years, you get um, a job offer. So I was offered a job in asset finance, I think I was also offered one in acquisition finance. Um, but by then, you know, I was so excited about European law. And in year 2000, WildSap merged with another firm called Denton Hall. And that's when it became Denton WildSap. And Denton Hall had a fantastic competition law department. So on qualification, I said, hey, you know, you guys have got a competition law department. I'm really keen on it. Could I come and join? And they said, well, at the moment, this is ring fence for Denton Hall um, uh, uh, qualifiers. Uh, We can't take you in at the moment, but um, why don't you come back in six months' time and and we'll see. So what I did was I went to the European Commission and I did a training. um, It's called a a stage. Uh, It's a six-month training um, provision that they offer there. 
more than say I, some, astronomical number of people apply like 10,000 people apply um, for I don't know sort of a thousand places or something anyway I did all this lobbying to MPs I did all of this stuff to get this position uh, in the end I was actually offered six different offers which was crazy mm. from different different departments that wanted me I had no idea why but it turned out that you know other other Brits were not interested in the European Commission at the time so uh, <laughs> Uh, so when I showed keenness, of course, they were quite keen back. No, not that I realised that. But anyway, so I joined um, the Directorate General, so DG Competition, in Brussels. And I went there um, from October till March. Um, and I was already a fully qualified lawyer by then. So you can imagine that they thought that was pretty useful. And of course, with my language skills, etc., so I did some very interesting cases. Um, I was in Unit F1, which was capital and co consumer goods um, under the director, Finn Lomholt. Um, and it was just fascinating, the kind of work that they were doing. And I was involved in the first merger um, that was outsourced from the merger unit. So within uh, the competition directorate, there was a special division for mer mergers, um, but they had sort of decentralized that so that it actually trickled down into the dedicated units. So we were capital and consumer goods. And so um, we got the very first uh, merger uh, case involving Globology, which is plasters, <laughs> plasters and casts and medical devices um, relating to healing of wounds. Ah. So that was a Smith and Nephew and Beiersdorf merger. Uh, so I think it was, I think it was Smith and Nephew requiring a Beiersdorf entity and because Smith and Nephew already had a lot of um, bandages and plaster making manufacturing facilities we had to analyze the effect on composition uh, competition of the merger of those two entities on in that particular business uh, so really fascinating uh, learned a lot about plasters and casts and things like that but it really got me excited about that and then when I came back to the UK um I, I wasn't able to actually get a job at Denton Wild Saps. Um, they didn't have room for me after all that, despite the great experience and insight I could then bring to the table. But another firm took me on. Um, they were called um, Taylor Joints and Garrett, um, but they became um, Taylor Vessing. So they merged as well when I was there. So um, that was the second firm that merged while I was there, what a, yes. What an interesting story. And, you know, throughout the whole story, your attitude and willingness to really go the extra mile to get to where you want to be shines through. You know, you were lobbying MPs, you found out all that you could, you expressed, you know, so much enthusiasm. I think that that really is a good lesson for anyone who wants to target somewhere specific in their career. And I learned something new from you today, Lara, phlebology. Who would have thought? That sounds like a... Now, how am I going to work the word phlebology into my normal conversation? <laughs> oh, I don't think I've used the word phlebology since the year 2000 actually <laughs> well maybe when my grandsons need a plaster I can somehow say something about it and they'll go what are you talking about Popo? 
<laughs> I know, so I know. Very yeah. specific, but a very interesting case. And I did some other really interesting cases. And uh, But I was really proud of that one because um the there were i think three of us who were working on this first uh, merger clearance um because it was so novel and we actually got to go and meet the god himself mario monti who was the the head of the european commission and we went into this special lift that went into his incredible office i mean it's a bit like you know that sort of james bond um, you, you go into uh, some huge masterminds type of office. I imagine Elon Musk probably has that sort of thing. But, you know, the fact that the, the commissioner, um, the, the director of the unit got so excited and kept telling me how this is such an honor and this is such a big deal. And I thought, right, well, you know, I'm only a stagiaire, like a trainee, and I'm already going up to meet the actual <laughs> head of the European Commission. <laughs> uh, so I thought, wow, going up in the world, right, this is the way to start. And obviously looked pretty good on my CV. Mm. So yes, I'm a, I'm a big believer in um, really strategizing about as you say where where do I want to get to what's going to get me there what's going to make me stand out um I'm never shy of doing the extra work. Um, I'm never shy of thinking about who ha- can help me get somewhere. So I'm I'm very interested in um, you know building the right relationships that will help me gain either the knowledge or uh, or someone who can you know mentor me into something or who can. Um, well, possibly even, you know, in those days, let's say, um, but pull strings uh, to, you know, it is, it is who you know. And it was, you know, it is very much more transparent these days. And I must applaud that it's very, very important that meritocracy is there. But in those days, it really was a thing, you know, who do you know? Um, Because the internet, email, and the World Wide Web, you know, it wasn't what it is today. You couldn't just connect with someone on LinkedIn. It wasn't like that. It really was, who did you know in person? So you had to make sure that you um, were not shy about getting around and uh, making yourself known, etc. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we've always said for so many years, it's six degrees of separation to get to a target person that you'd like to speak with. But these days, it's really only maybe two, max three degrees of separation because of the ease of everything being online. But I think that's something that has been lost a little bit these days, because back in the day, and I, I started my career way back in the early 1980s, it was, there was, there was nothing online. It was everything to do with getting to know someone, getting them to get to know you. Well, first of all, be aware that you exist, then to get to know you, get to like you and trust you so much that they realize that you actually can deliver. And then they, you would gain really strong referrals and recommendations. And it would make such a difference if you could develop those really strong relationships, but also make an impact when people meet you. And I think with your skills and experience and amazing attitude, and also I sense this lack of fear. It's like, let's give it a go. Uh, That's what's coming through really strongly um, from for me, from you, is that 
this this attitude of let's give it a try and um, if I work really hard at it and I do the right things I can get there which I think is really inspiring and so now I know that you have lived and worked and traveled to many different countries and so from Europe and from the UK how did the rest of your career progress? So, um, as I mentioned, uh, I got that job with Taylor Vessing, mm. um, and, uh, then I moved to another firm, DLA Piper, well, which DLA, but which merged with Piper while I was there, that we can see a pattern. <laughs> yeah. So no firm wants to take me if they, if they don't want to merge, cause it'll happen. <laughs> um, but no, those were the days when all of the big firms were trying to globalize. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I was at DLA. Um, I was doing European competition law. Um, it was all moving forward. It was a very exciting time. Things were very, very new, um, and exciting. Um, but all sorts of things um, happened there. And I, I realized that actually law wasn't for me. Um, a very, very stressful, long hours culture, um, a lot of pressure. There were some very unfortunate incidents um, that happened. And I just realized, you know what, this isn't what I thought it was. Um, but I've been here and I've tried that. And I've realized that actually... My, my personality and um, the kind of work and the hours and also just my my physical makeup. I'm not somebody who can work till 3 a.m. every day. I can't. Just my body gives up. And so mainly for sort of health reasons and mental health reasons, um, I decided that actually um, I would retrain as a Montessori nursery school teacher. <laughs> so um, I quit the law. Um, and I was, uh, was already married by then and we were focused on starting a family. So we decided that, um, rather than be, um, uh, a lawyer who has to, you know, hire a nanny for, for her children, I decided to, uh, retrain as a Montessori nursery school teacher and work with young children and get the sort of, um, education that would help me be a better mother for, for my children. Um, and so that's what I did. But then again, because I think I'm just not, I, I just not, my body is just not that resilient. Um, and so I kept catching horrible colds from all of these children. So these, you know, these snotty nosed, tiny toddlers bringing these horrible germs in. I was ill so much. And, um, uh, yeah, so I think I realized, wow, this is going to be tough for me to be a nursery school teacher. And in the meantime, a fellow lawyer at um, DLA, she um, had got this beautiful kitchen from Sweden. So she's Swedish and she'd brought the, uh, the kitchen from her hometown and installed it. And I thought this was the most fabulous kitchen I'd ever seen. So we had a kitchen in, uh, we were living on the King's Road in Chelsea and we had this very awkward shaped kitchen and it, and it also had a boiler in it and all sorts of funny cabinetry. So I got um, her kitchen uh, contacts to come to the UK and fit this fabulous tailor-made bespoke kitchen that covered all those horrible boilers that made everything look fabulous, made the most of the space. And uh, I thought this is just 
the most incredible thing. And then we moved house. We we sold that property and we moved to Wimbledon and we did a side return, which is an extension of the back of the house to create a very large um, kitchen, living room, dining, open plan space. And so uh, we got that kitchen company to do another fabulous kitchen uh, for us there, which I did actually design by myself. And uh, and then having done, you know, those two kitchens and then together with uh, with my former colleague, Sophia, we said, you know what, we could actually start a business with this because everyone kept saying to us, this kitchen is incredible. Where did you get this kitchen? And uh, so we built a Swedish chalet in my garden and we opened a Swedish kitchen company. And how did we do that? Well, we went to that manufacturer in Sweden and we said, hey, do you want us to be your exclusive distributors for the UK? And this is us with our competition knowledge because we say your exclusive distributor. <laughs> so give us the territory of the United Kingdom. And they said, oh, yes, that would be great. You know, we'd love to expand the business. They were a very small family owned business. But what we realized was that in the same town, there was this very high-end kitchen company called Liedhultz, which is like the small bone of Sweden. Mm. And we thought, look, this would be great. We could have high-end and sort of mid-range as well, so that we cater for two different budgets and, you know, different types of, of markets. And then we can offer a, a wider range because the... Um, the medium uh, price ones were a, much, a lot more modern, you know, lots of spray um, painted, lacquered kind of modern Italian style kitchens, whereas the um, the bespoke kitchens were more um, shaker style or solid wood. Um, and we thought, you know, the two different um, offerings could appeal. So we went to them and we did a whole PowerPoint presentation, you know, as because we've been lawyers, we're like, oh, this is how you do things. And we brought, you know, a level of professionalism that, I think these kitchen guys had never seen before because again they're they're out in the middle of nowhere in a very small village in Sweden and they see these two you know lawyers come to them and go we could be your exclusive distributors in the UK and I think they're a bit taken aback but we said but this other kitchen company we were already representing them do you want to get in on this so they went oh okay yes please and that is how we opened and we we designed the brochures ourselves. We had all the photos taken. We learned about the software. So we had to learn the CAD software. Um, and actually everything was in Swedish. So, um, I had been luckily exposed to Swedish um, when I was a child in, in Spain. A lot of my friends are Swedish. So I had picked up some conversational level. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm fluent at all. However, when it comes to um, learning all the names for drawers and, and a fridge and all of that, it was no problem for me as a linguist. And so I, I yeah, I learned how to use CAD uh, in Swedish and how to do all the kitchen orders. And that's how we started business and I was in that for four and a half years and we took it to the high street um, and then my husband who um, I had met as a trainee at WildSapt he then got um, an offer to join a firm in Hong Kong so we both said wow you know, what a great opportunity to move to Asia. We are both Eurasians. He is same as you, Hong Kong, Chinese, English mix. Um, and I thought this is such a great opportunity to try a different lifestyle. By then we had two young children and I thought, yeah, let's do it. So uh, I sold my half of the business to Sophia 
And she uh, has taken that business to extremes. She has been absolutely amazing with it. It's called Solar Kitchens, which stands for Sophia Lara. So la. Sophia Lara Kitchens. She's got three showrooms. Um, please do check out her kitchens if you're in the UK or in the rest of Europe. So solarkitchens.com. Free plug for Sophia. <laughs> You've done an amazing job with the business. Um, but uh, yeah, we moved to Hong Kong and um, that's when, you know, we were there for three years. And I was I was suddenly thinking, oh my goodness, you know, I've given up that business having been an entrepreneur, having been a lawyer, having been a Montessori teacher and heading towards my 40s and had, you know, a, a very good education. You know, I, I went to Oxford University and all of those kind of things. I suddenly thought, what kind of example am I setting to my daughters if I don't work? And I started to think, well, what what job could I do? That typical, you know, stay-at-home mom attitude where you think, I don't know anything, my CV's rubbish, I don't know what to do. And um, I I spoke to my neighbour and she said, oh, this friend of mine, um, you should speak to my friend because she is... um, she's working in business development and marketing at a law firm. And you were a lawyer, weren't you? I said, yes. Um, you know, could, could I meet her and, and, and find out more? So I found out more about this job. It sounded very interesting. And I went to a recruiter. So she, she gave me the name of a recruitment consultant. I went along and they said, no, um, very difficult, very difficult. You're really a square peg trying to fit into a round hole, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. So the fact that I was a lawyer, that, you know, that, that doesn't wash. It's, it, it's not an advantage to doing business doesn't development in a law firm. Wow. Oh, you know, so I was pretty surprised, very, very disheartened, thinking like, okay, well, never mind. I'll, I'll try something else then. But I went back to this friend, Jane, and she said, oh, that's ridiculous. Okay, let me let me um, put you in touch with someone else. So then I met this other recruiter, <clears throat> and um, she said, oh, let me speak to this um, person that I know quite well. They've been looking for a very long time to find the right person for their role. Um, I, I'll see if I can get you an interview. So I went along to that. I got on very well with that person. I met a lot of different people there. And what we agreed, since it wasn't, you know, I, I was a bit out of the box, um, we just said, look, why don't we give it um, a six-month uh, contract so that, you know, very low risk on both sides. Uh, I can see how I go. Um, I'm not really bringing relevant experience to the table, but I'm, you know, I'm a fast learner. Let's see how we get along. And uh, so that was with Winston and Strawn, and that was a really great role. I enjoyed myself very much. I did my full six months. I learned on the job. And um, I actually stayed seven months because uh, Jonathan, my husband, he got transferred to Singapore. So um, uh, we I I was offered a permanent role, but um, actually only stayed seven months, and then we moved to Singapore. So... Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Another interesting journey from Montessori teacher, which by the way, I was as well many years ago. This is when we, when we spoke before this, this podcast, we realized there are all these synergies and, and it's like a similar, similar path, although not in law for me. But so from there to setting up your own business with a friend, Solar Kitchens. Okay. So remember that everybody. That sounds fascinating. It must have been such an interesting time with all the design and that tapped into your creative side as well as your business side and your legal mind, yes? And then upping root with a young family and going to a a, a new country again. But it wouldn't have been too uh, huge a cultural shock being part Asian, part Western yourself, and of course with with your with your husband being half Chinese English, like like me, moving to Hong Kong would have been a really interesting and exciting time. And at that time in Hong Kong, it would have been just wonderful to to be there but you mentioned the the recruiter who was negative about you going for a role that didn't tick every box and I think the important thing to remember is that don't take one person's opinion at face value because it could be completely wrong and all that recruiter didn't do was get to know your personality, your attitude, your adaptability, and all of those additional skills that you were bringing to a particular role. So thank goodness the second recruiter was able to think out of the box and actually uh, see you as an individual and what you could bring to the table and the excellent communication uh, that you bring as well. And you know, when it comes to business development, to have someone understand the industry then to go in, even though it's a slightly different role, it's not such a big change that it's impossible. So I'm glad that you did have that opportunity, but then you're whisked away to Singapore. And so how did things go in Singapore? One of my favorite countries, of course. Yes. So we were in Hong Kong for three years um, and then Jonathan got transferred to Singapore. And um, luckily I was able to get a job because by then, as you say, I could tick all the boxes. There are very specific job requirements for business development and marketing professionals. Um, it's a role that has very specific criteria. And if you can't tick those boxes, then it's hard, you know, which of course, in my very first foray into this area, I did not tick uh, any box at all, I think probably. Um, but having had that one role, even just literally seven months, I could tick all the boxes. So from then on, you know, I would say to anyone who's venturing into a new career area, um, you know, look at all of those different uh, job descriptions start to notice which are the criteria you know those boxes you need to tick and how can you get those skills under your belt so that the next role you go for it's easy bam 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 you've got all of those so I recognized that quite early realized which areas I needed to work on so that I could tick those boxes um, and so my second role was very easy to get and then over the years because um, it's now we're just celebrating our eighth year in Singapore um I worked at various firms, um, but it has been a very interesting uh, progression within business development and marketing because I think um, I first started out as a very traditional 
marketer, you know, learning all the ropes about communication, press releases, PR, editorial, um, learning about directory submissions for legal, etc. But um, I also began to leverage my unique skills, which was the fact that I had been a lawyer. So what was it that made me stand out from the other BD professionals? It was the fact that I could communicate on a peer-to-peer level with other lawyers. Um, and it meant that I was able to grow trust with them and the level of insight that enabled me to serve them much because um, I knew what it was like to sit on their side of the table and I understood the pressures of you know, the billable hour, making sure that my time uh, sheet was filled every single day, making sure that my clients felt that I was always available. Um, And then knowing about the importance of establishing your own personal brand and reputation, growing your network, doing business development. And, And because I had that level of empathy and insight, it meant that I really could give them the kind of insights that they really wanted. Um, And it also meant that um, because I had that level of trust, lawyers are very highly skeptical people. They are, it's their job to look for risk and to identify the areas which are going to uh, need to be de-risked. And for that reason, you always have to provide evidence that something will work. So they, they will always question anything you bring to them. So I might say, well, why don't we do a round table? You know, we'll get in some people and, and you can give a talk about, you know, uh, employment law in China, for example. Um, and they'll go, well, yeah, I, I don't know if these kind of things work, you know. And so you'd have to go, well, actually, let me tell you they do work because I, you know, I did this event blah, blah, blah. Um, and this person got this piece of work exactly because of that, you know, the return on investment is there. Um, and so then they'll, then they'll go, oh, really? Uh, and then they'll say, yes, why don't you speak to that lawyer? Look, let me put you in touch. You'd let's talk about it. And then they'll go, oh, okay. You know, then they relax because they go, the evidence is there. Okay. I'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think understanding that need for evidence, um, and understanding their thinking process, um, and the way that they look at the world, um, is very important. And you have to really speak their language and you be able to communicate to that. Then, you know, that you're really, um, doing something that's in their interests. And so, um, because of that, I began to realize that I could also do that with clients, that I could attend events. And this comes to my interest in everything. So um, I'm always wanting to learn. And so when I noticed that there are so many seminars at different companies and different law firms and all sorts going on about different areas of law or different areas of, of change, you know, regulatory change or anything happening in Singapore, I thought, look, I'll just go along to those. And of course, then I'm, I'm there. And then I start networking. So I start to speak to um, in-house counsel. So, you know, what's going on with your company? Oh, really? You're requiring uh, a new a business uh, center in Vietnam. We have an office in Vietnam. Do you already, you know, have lawyers lined up? Would it be of interest if I connected you to the head of our Vietnam office? Oh, yes, that would be very helpful. I'm thinking, oh, okay, great. So what I began to do is realize and connect the dots that, you know, the more people I knew, 
the more likely it was that I might bring some bit of business into the law firm. And I was lucky that the leadership at that firm um, was very supportive of me because they recognized, look, she's a lawyer. She knows about law generally. She can go out there and actually talk about these things. Um, and so they were quite happy for me to do that. And then once I started bringing in business, of course, they really liked that because what made sense about that was the fact that when you've got an individual lawyer out there selling themselves and their practice, of course, they're focused on that area. So if you're an M&A lawyer, so mergers and acquisitions, you're thinking about mergers and acquisitions, right? And when you speak to someone, you're saying, so, you know, is your business interested in merging in another? Or are you thinking of acquiring a new business? Or, you know, that's that kind of interest. Whereas in my position, I was interested in the entire firm, not just the office I was sitting in in Singapore, but all our global offices at the moment they... Somebody mentioned, oh, we're doing something in, you know, in another place like, oh, in Taiwan or, oh, we're, we're expanding to the United States or any of these things. I would then think, oh, right, you know, how can I solve this problem? So constantly thinking of all the keywords that they would mention. And what does that keyword mean for me and the people in my business, in, in the firm? And so because of that, um, it meant that we brought in many, many opportunities. And it also meant that I understood what was going on for businesses, um, that my network was big enough that when we wanted to organize events, I knew people that I could bring in as speakers, um, I could get collaboration opportunities, etc. So it really began to uh, become evident to me that growing a professional network was very, very important. Mm, and the passion that you have for it really comes through. You know, what's interesting is that so often when someone gets a business development or sales professional on their team, they don't match up with the delivery team, the people who are actually doing the work. And so sales are off selling and trying to grow the business. And very often they sell something that delivery might say, that's not what we do. You know, it doesn't quite match up. So the beauty of what you bring to the table is that with your extensive experience within law and your understanding of international law and having traveled to all of these different places and understand the cultural nuances too, bringing that as a business development professional and legal mind is very valuable for your business. Now, I'm interested to know, because this is full on and there's a lot going on and you've got lots of energy, but you've also said that physically you get a little bit exhausted because being, you know, like super mum or, you know, being everything to everyone is really challenging. You also are now a coach too, one day a week and the rest of the week you're working, plus you're a mum, plus you're a loving mother and a good daughter. How do you balance everything and not burn out? I think everyone is very conscious of this concept of burnout. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it was something that we really recognised um, or talked about very much before. Um, but we would see people that it would happen to along the way. Um, and it, but it was never really, um, never talked about in a way that I think the pandemic really brought these things into sharp focus. Um, so yes, I've always been very conscious of the need to protect my energy. And especially because, as you say, I'm a very high energy person. 
Um, I'm not an introvert. I'm definitely an ambivert, but I, I, I began to understand that introverts for them, the problem is, is that other people sap their energy and they therefore need to crawl into a cave and recharge. I'm not like that. I get energy from other people. So I do need other people. Um, I get, uh, I get de-energized if I'm on my own. Um, but at the same time, I am so high energy and so enthusiastic and always go, overboard that I do exhaust myself very easily and my mother always says to me oh Lara you've overdone it again haven't you (laughs) so I'm on you know I'm always sort of full blast I can probably go you know for eight weeks just like you know eight week terms I used to have at university but after that I collapse in a heap I get terribly ill and then I you know get the flu or something horrible I have to spend about three days in bed (laughs) so I'm like that um but yes it is hard to juggle so many things um, and I think that because of the nature of, uh, you know, my personality and the way that I do overdo things, um, I did, um, I did unfortunately get breast cancer because my immunity, um, was so low. I, I suffered from, um, very low immunity, I think because of just, yeah, overdoing things really, um, traveling, um, overseas quite a lot, pushing myself, um, to, I I think because my role was very, very responsible, I often felt like I had to be there. And there were a lot of times when I knew if I listened to my body, my body was telling me, Lara, you should not be getting up this morning and going into work and hosting that entire event. You actually need to stay in bed. But I always thought, you know, I'm irreplaceable. No, actually, Lara, you have to be there. You can't let people down. And I just pushed myself through that too many times and eventually the cancer got me. Um, So it was during my chemotherapy that I came across the concept of being able to learn about coaching through virtual means. I had never heard of Zoom before, um, but there was a coaching course on Zoom. I was able to do it from my home virtually and um, with my wig on, um, you know, I had a chemo that made me very, very ill. I had very good and very bad days, Um, but having a distraction, learning something new at a point where I was, so right in the beginning you know, it was very touch and go. I really honestly was at a phase where I didn't think I had a future. Like I literally was there thinking there is no way I'm actually going to make it to even the next year. Um, but once um, I realized that the treatment was beginning to work, it was beginning to kick in. It wasn't that it was um, 100% at that point, but it was going in the right direction enough for me to think, actually, I do have a future here. Yes, it's worth me learning something new. And I have such a sort of A-type personality that I thought, my God, here, you know, it's going to take me um, seven months to go undergo this entire treatment. I don't want to waste my time. Like, I have, I have, to, I have to bring something out of this. And my friends are laughing at me going, uh, don't you think that like fighting cancer and recovering from that is enough? And I was like, no no, that's not enough. Like I can't add that to my CV, you know, come on. <laughs> I need to come out of this with an ICF international coaching federation, um, coaching certification here. Um, so, so of course, you know, um, that's what I set my mind to and that is what I got. But what it really helped me do was 
um, learn about Zoom and connect with so many people all over the world on Zoom because you have to do 100 hours of coaching mm. to get that certification. And mm. that is a lot of time. And so what did I do? Well, I tapped into my network again and I said, folks, you, you know, you guys can have free coaching. Um, I'm learning how to be a coach. Would you be interested in a conversation? And of course, everyone was very generous and said yes. And once I started to get into that, I suddenly began to realize that my actual superpower, which I'd always thought was other things, is my level of intuition. And I really hadn't realized that coaching is all about intuition and connection. Mm. Once I realized that magic, that was when I realized I have to be a coach. And so I left my job. <laughs> I threw myself into coaching full time. But then I realized, you know what? It takes time to grow a coaching practice, but I needed time to recover. So that suited me then. But then I was offered a job with a... Um, a business that is involved in contract lawyers. So then I was in uh, trying to get uh, lawyers to become contract lawyers and then to match the match make them with contract roles covering maternity or special projects, etc. So I was able to get back into law doing that. And then I was headhunted for my current position. So I'm currently head of business uh, Asia, um, head of business development for Asia Pacific for a barrister's chambers. So having been in legal um, uh, in a law firm, and then I moved into an alternative legal services provider, and now I'm in a barrister's chambers. So this is a chamber for barristers they are the advocates because in the UK it's a split profession you have solicitors who do the work which is more of the sort of paperwork dealing directly with clients and then you have the barristers who do the advocacy either the oral advocacy in courts or the written advocacy as well and um, so they work together with solicitors on cases so that work is really very interesting and it's it works perfectly with my coaching so I work Monday to Thursday for 20 Essex here in Singapore and then on Fridays I run my coaching and consulting business. You're such an inspiration Lara honestly to have gone through the personal challenges and the health challenges and yet still want to do more because for most people going through chemo will just wipe them of all energy but thank goodness for your energy level and again it's all in your attitude and you know it's funny that you were saying that when you started coaching and getting your accreditation through the ICF that it was everything fell into place and it was your intuition that makes you're a good coach as well because I, it took me back 22 years now to when I first became a coach and it was I was had always been searching for something and I enjoyed the roles that I had but when I was interviewing for this role as a coach and I was learning more and more about it because I didn't even know what coaching was initially but the more I found out about it the more I realized oh, this sounds like I've come home 
it's a funny feeling. It's like that sudden aha moment that this is what I was born to do. And now, fast forward 22 years, I've been at it for so long now. And yes, you know, getting your certifications, the accreditations are so important. But it's the people that you connect with and the difference that you can make in their lives simply by listening to what's important to them, that you can really tap into their own powers as well and draw that out. I think that's the magic of coaching. And for you, Lara, combining this with the fabulous work that you're doing at 20 Essex, and I need to let our listeners know that you also have another side project, which is beautiful and fun, (laughs) because there's obviously too many hours in the day for you to fill. (laughs) And so now you've got this this amazing, it's called Lara Q Designs, yes? Lara Q Designs, and in your spare time, I don't know where you find it, you create these amazing crafts. So I recommend everyone follows Lara Q Designs on Instagram, as well as check out Lara's LinkedIn profile, because it is very impressive. And Lara, what would you say your number one superpower is? What do you bring to the table? I think what I bring is an ability to connect with people very, very quickly Mm. on a level that is... um, you know, I can just meet someone for one time and they'll remember me, I'll remember them and we'll have a deep connection. Um, and I have no qualms about ringing them up 30 years later and saying, remember that time, you know, we met, we met at this party and, you know, and they'll go, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember you, you know, and then we'll just kick it off again as though we've known each other our whole lives. Mm-hmm. I think that, that is, yeah, that's my superpower, the, the deep connection. But again, yeah, the, power, the, the power of my... connections and genu- authentic connection, which is what's so important, isn't it? And I think being a, I'm sure that the people remember you because you do listen as well as talk, you know, ex- explain your stories so very, very clearly and with such incredible passion and enthusiasm as well. And I'm sure that there'll be another new venture for you coming up as well. <laughs> that maybe you can also squeeze that in as well. You know, it was such a joy talking to you. Thank you for sharing your story because it's been fascinating. You've taken us from from Spain, you know, through to Hong Kong and Singapore and London and Guildford and through Europe. And it's been an absolutely fascinating journey. And I'm very privileged and so happy to have had you on your career podcast. And I hope actually that we should have you back again because another time we can talk about, and I was thinking we'd get to it this time, but but I've run out of time, unfortunately. But we can talk about what it's like to be a third culture kid and share our Eurasian heritage history. Would you like that? Absolutely. I think um, this is such a, a global world now. Uh, certainly in Singapore, um, at my children's school, there are just thousands of um, third culture kids um, and it is a very unique perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also a very 
good for parents of third culture kids to understand from the perspective of an older third culture kid, mm. um, you know, how they can support their children and what that mindset gives you. The advantages and disadvantages, you know, there are challenges, but at the same time, there are some very unique gifts that we are given um, because of that experience. And certainly um, being a third culture kid has really helped me in my life in terms of my outlook, uh, my ability to connect with others, my language acquisition abilities and things like that and ability to adapt. And I think, you know, in this brave new world that we live in, the number one thing to be able to do is to adapt. You know, we all hear about people pivoting and adapting and all of that, but that is what it is. You know, we are threatened by AI um, at this very moment. So what can we do to adapt as human beings? That's what makes us so unique. We are able to reimagine ourselves, reinvent ourselves. So anybody who is able to be agile, an agile thinker, an agile learner, lifelong learner, um, these are the people who will thrive. The new survival of the fittest, Darwin would be intrigued, but mm. the, the new human, like we need to be human being 3.0, that human being 3.0 is somebody who does have a growth mindset, who is able to learn, is willing, and has the energy to do so. Yeah, wise, wise words. And I think also having a, a global mindset and understanding across cultures and what that means. And I think that we're very privileged to be third culture kids and be parents of third culture kids and and now my grandchildren as well you're too young to get to that stage but soon <laughs> in, hopefully in not too years, soon yes <laughs> that's yeah. right so much to share thank you so much Laura for your time and I look forward to this episode going live so that we can share your story to everybody thank you so much for having me Jane it's been a pleasure If you enjoyed this episode of Your Career Podcast, I invite you to check out my career success program at thecareersacademy.online. The Career Success Program is the original program that uniquely provides 24-7 on-demand career support and fortnightly live career coaching sessions to keep you on track to reach your career goals. It is the essential resource for anyone who wants to manage their career effectively, make a career change and land the job they'll love. Whether you're in exploration mode or seeking a new career direction and need help to make it a reality, the Career Success Program is for you. Not only do you get access to my step-by-step -step roadmap to navigate your career crossroads, my extensive training library and exclusive members-only discounts and tools, you'll also become part of my supportive community of professionals who will help you with feedback, encouragement and advice. All this and more makes the Career Success Program the number one place to be for anyone looking to start, manage and grow their career. Check it out and join me at thecareersacademy.online.